So let me repeat question 88. What way of escape has God revealed to sinners that they may be saved from his wrath and curse due to them for their sin? The answer is God has revealed to sinners the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, as the only way of salvation from their sins. Question two, what is the gospel? There are many right ways to answer this, but I want to answer it in a particular fashion, and I hope you'll uh, see why as we move along. What is the gospel? The short answer is the joyous proclamation of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. The joyous proclamation of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. When William Tyndall, uh, the famous early reformer, preacher, was asked this question, listen to his answer and his emphasis. Now, in some ways, this is not a particularly good answer. Um, it leaves out some important aspects. But you will not miss the good news uh, part of this definition. I hope you enjoy this as much as I have enjoyed it from time to time. Here is his definition of what is the gospel. It is the good, merry, glad, and joyful tiding that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That's the whole answer. <laughs> it's nothing about the facts of what Jesus did or his death or faith and repentance. It's just good news. And there's a sense in which that's right. The Greek word for the gospel simply means good news. And Tyndall, translator that he was, wanted to get that point across. So he um, devolved into uh, even more repetition with adjectives than I do in my preaching, which is pretty bad sometimes. The good, merry, glad, and joyful tiding that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. So in other words, the gospel is good news. It's glad tidings. And it is. It's what the word means. And of course, if we understand the message of the gospel, we would say, oh, there's no better news in all the world. This message is that although men are sinners of the most heinous sort in God's eyes, fully deserving his righteous rage and eternal punishment, still, God has made a way of escape in Jesus Christ. So it's not just news. This is good news. This is not news to be ashamed of or hide under a bushel. This is a, a news to be proclaimed and proudly and loudly and, if I may say so, with a big smile on our face. This is the only comfort in life and death, that we come to know that we are not our own, but belong to Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that tells us that. So the gospel is the word of truth, yes, Colossians 1.5. But it's not just a set of accurate propositional statements. It is also, according, according to Romans 1.16, the power of God to salvation, Ephesians 1.13. It's the means whereby God exercises creative life 
in a sinner. It spares men from their deserved misery in this life and the next, and so it is also called peace, Ephesians 5.16, and the hope of eternal life, Colossians 1.23. It really is good news. So any questions about that? In some ways inadequate, but in other ways uh, dead-on definition of the gospel. Question three, who has the gospel been revealed to? Well, according to our answer, sinners. Sinners. In the original question, it said that the gospel had been revealed to us. Well, who's us? It's a bit nebulous, and it could be anyone, sinner or saint, uh, sitting in a congregation or sitting at home. This, this is a bit more specific. The gospel has been revealed to sinners. People characterized not by holiness, but by sin. Gentile sinners and Jewish sinners. Male sinners and female sinners. People of every nation, tongue, and group. But all sinners. Notice the gospel is not said to be revealed only to the elect. Here's a guard against some forms of hyper-Calvinism. The gospel is revealed to sinners. It doesn't only come to the ears of those that God has chosen for salvation. Oh, it does come to them, their ears. It always comes to them at some point in their lifetime. But it comes to a broader audience than just the elect. Matthew 12, uh, 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, Jesus said, the end will come. The revealing of the gospel goes out to men all over the world for the rest of time. Luke 9, 1 to 6 um, demonstrates this as well. The gospel was revealed to sinners. Now, some of them received it and some of them didn't. And when someone didn't receive it, the disciples were given instructions by Christ to go on to the next city and keep preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel comes to people who don't believe. The gospel comes to the perishing, those who, in fact, in the end, do perish. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Oh, they hear it with their physical ear. It resounds in their brain in a physical sense, but it never resonates in their soul. It never captures their mind, their will, their heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a beautiful phrase. You see, the good news is not meant by God only for the elect. Yes, in a special sense, 
it is meant for the elect, but it is meant for all men. Romans 1.14, Paul could say, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Again, this should keep us away from one of the errors of hyper-Calvinism with its tendency not to preach uh, the good news to someone who shows no sign of interest in that gospel. Oh, yes, we do. We preach it to anyone who we can make listen to it. When men came with rocks and dead cats to throw at Wesley and Whitfield, they preached to them anyway. They didn't let the fact that these people came with a bad motive and hated the message and didn't want to hear it, it didn't stop them from preaching it. And some of those people were converted. For some of those people, the gospel became experientially good news. But we might ask the question, does the gospel come to all sinners without exception? You know, often in discussions of Arminianism and Calvinism, or even hyper-Calvinism, and its various shades, you'll get people assuming that every person everywhere has heard the gospel. But very plainly, they have not. We know that both biblically and just from our historic understanding of the word, a world. No, some sinners, those who hear the preached word, or are witness to, or read their Bibles, um, hear it. But there are myriads of people who never heard or never will hear the gospel. Oh, they're still sinners, but not every man ever born has heard the gospel. Every man who's ever born has been confronted with the reality that there is a God who is eternal and infinite. Romans 1 tells us that. But the doctrine of the gospel, the truths of Jesus Christ and his saving work, are not found in nature. They're only found in special revelation. They're only found in scripture. And so where scripture has not gone, or where the preachers and teachers of scripture have not gone, there has been no gospel there, and people have perished in their sins. This is one of the great motivations for speaking to our friends, family, and neighbors, for sending missionaries out, that is, for sending pastors out to other parts of the world, because without the gospel, people perish. Why did I ask this question? Well, this will be a balancing truth for some of us to keep us from falling into the error of those who say, well, but salvation for those people is available. It's, it's outside of the gospel. They don't need the gospel to be saved. That is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not the teaching of the Bible. So this is a good answer and it keeps us from falling into the ditch on the right side of perhaps hyper-Calvinism and the ditch on the left side of uh, salvation without Jesus and without a gospel. Right. Again, any questions about question three? Oh, Wes, I'm so disappointed. Question four. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see your face, bud. Question four. How is the gospel a way of escape? 
the short answer is it is the truth of and the means by which God's righteousness becomes ours. To be saved, we have to be as perfect as God. And the gospel is the way that happens. You might say, now wait a minute. <laughs> the gospel is a story. It, it's just a story. It's words. How can that help my situation? Stories about Jesus aren't going to solve this problem, are they? I mean, I've got an existential problem. I'm a sinner. I'm under wrath. I'm damned. How can a story help me? I mean, I, I have to live a, a perfect sin, sinless life if I'm going to be saved. Even one sin makes me guilty before God. Well, the answer to that perceptive set of questions is that the gospel proclaims that there is a way to have our guilt removed and a perfect righteousness made ours. We can be forgiven and be made as righteous as Jesus. And of course, the answer is by faith in Jesus Christ. It turns out that Jesus earned a perfect righteousness and died a perfect sacrificial death for sins. So that if somehow what he did could become ours, well, that would be good news, wouldn't it? That would take care of my problem. And that's how a story can be your salvation. This is how a story can solve your existential sin problem. The answer is that the story tells about Jesus Christ, and if you will put your faith in that Jesus, the righteous lamb, you will be saved from the wrath of God for the sins that you've committed. So the gospel is a way of escape because it is the story and the powerful means through which God works faith in us and clothes us not only with forgiveness but with perfect righteousness. This is why in Reformed churches, and I think I might say especially in Reformed Baptist churches, the preaching of the Word of God is central. It's, it's vital because we believe it is that means and that occasion when God usually works salvation. Questions about that? Question five. Is there really only one way of salvation? Really? <laughs> really? Seems kind of narrow. Is there really only one way? I mean, not, not like even if we kind of talk over here a little bit, Another escape hatch? Another? Really? And the answer to the question is, yes, there really is only one way of escape. Yes, there is only one way of escape from the wrath to come. There's only one way of salvation. The gospel is the exclusive way to peace with God. Now, we could say that different ways. We could say Jesus Christ and his work is the exclusive way of peace to God. I'm just using 
gospel as a summary of that. All right? The word gospel is, is so misused and misapplied in our day. Everything's gospel. We have a gospel family and a gospel home and a gospel house and a gospel dog and a gospel uh, play and we go to watch gospel movies and we have gospel this and gospel that and gospel songs and gospel... And the term is so diluted, it means almost nothing. The gospel, strictly speaking, is the story of what Jesus did to save us. And if we turn everything into gospel, um, this begins to disappear. And the gospel is, is not just the preferred way to God. It's not just the best way. It's not just a way. It's not just a way that's worked for a lot of people. You know, there's some supposedly gospel preachers who, when confronted with supposedly hard questions on television, you know, back off. They'll just say, oh, well, uh, but the gospel worked for me. Uh, not saying that everybody has to do that, not saying, right? Uh, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the apostles preached and died for. No. No, the good news that God has made a way for wicked men to be righteous through faith in his Son is the only way of escape. It alone, because Jesus alone, provides the perfection you need to draw near to God and not be consumed. The Bible makes this claim very clearly. Anyone who says otherwise has a darkened mind or is a liar. Maybe both. Galatians 1, 6-9. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. There is one true gospel. He goes on, Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, anathema, damned. Let him go to hell, Paul is very plainly saying. Wow, that's not very nice, Paul. It's not about nice. It's about the truth that will send men to heaven or hell. And there's only one gospel, and it has to be rightly preached, rightly represented, so that people do not place their faith in a false God, a false Christ, or themselves. As I have already said, as if Paul hadn't been plain enough, <laughs> he goes on, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Or, of course, the well-known John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. This exclusive claim is the gospel. Right. Now some might say, 
I hear you loud and clear. I understand that the Christian church has taught that fairly frequently for 2,000 years. Your Bible says that, but wow, that is so intolerant. That is so unloving. That's bigotry. Uh, you must have some kind of Freudian insecurity to have to be so dependent and on and on the insults come. So let's go to question six, our last question. Well, if this is true, if there's only one way of salvation, how do we refute the charge of religious bigotry? When someone says, you're just, you're nothing but a religious bigot. How do we answer? Well, I think we answer in two fundamental ways, and it depends on what they mean. And a great place to start when anyone is giving you accusatory questions like that is to keep them talking by asking them the question, well, what do you mean by that? And it will clarify in your mind where they're coming from and what they mean and help you to answer them. For some, um, to make an exclusive claim, any kind of exclusive claim, is offensive and you are ignorant and they're going to call you names and that's pretty much it at the end of the day. And for people like that, uh, you need to figure out if you're casting pearls before swine. And if you are, you need to stop doing it. You need to pray for them. You need to love them. You might want to try to even show them that uh, what they've just said to you is an exclusive claim. And you kind of think that's, well, ignorant and offensive and it seems like they're a bigot. You can turn it right back on them. But if by religious bigot our accuser means that we're ignorant of the true state of affairs and with a little more education we'd know better than to think this way, well then we deny that we are religious bigots. To the first person I really want to say hopefully for some effect, you're right. In that sense, I'm a bigot. I think there's only one way. I don't think any other way is right. I'm an exclusivist. To the second person, I want to deny that I'm in need of education. In fact, I want to say, my friend, I think you're probably the one who needs a better education. You clearly don't understand the problem of sin. <laughs> you don't understand what it, it deserves. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the person of Jesus Christ. You don't understand your real life problem. You're under the curse of God. But again, to kind of go back to the, the first kind of person, often charges of religious bigotry are an imprecise way of saying that they're just really against any claim of exclusivity or absolutes. And to those, we're just going to have to say, you're right, I'm guilty. I believe in absolutes. I believe in God. I don't believe in any possibility that there isn't the God of the Bible. I believe the word of God is his word and his word alone. And I don't believe there's any possibility it isn't that. You're right. I'm not willing to entertain those thoughts. Just as you have certain absolutes, 
and certain things, certain givens, certain presuppositions, certain buy-ins that you are unwilling to investigate and unwilling to, to change, at least until the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart and mind. So for those who think we just have a wrong understanding of things, well, I think we can answer him a certain way. For those who just want to threaten us, uh, demean us, outshout us, um, say what you can, and, and then frankly, protect your life uh, for another day. As Jesus told the disciples, it's fine to flee to the next city. You don't have to be a martyr. You can be, but you don't have to be. Unfortunately today, for people who deny all exclusive claims, we don't often get the chance anymore to say, well, you do understand that what you just said to me was an exclusive claim, right? I mean, it's nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's self-defeating. Because every man is ultimately a religious elitist. Every man is ultimately a religious elitist. Every man has absolutes. And you need to understand that what comes to these Greeks, these wise men, these pagans, is the foolishness of the gospel. And if your gospel is inoffensive to them, it's not only not the Bible's gospel, it will be an inoperative gospel. You see, God's goal isn't in the gospel to just forgive some sins and make somebody a better person. It is to make that man or woman utterly capitulate to the godness of God. This is how Jonathan Edwards was converted. Growing up in a Puritan household, he hated the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If there was anything he didn't like, it was that. When he finally bowed the knee, when he said, yes, you are Lord, ah, then, <laughs> then light, then forgiveness, then faith and repentance came. I think John uh, Piper has often made the point that when people say, well, I believe in Christ as my Savior, not my Lord, he said, I, often when I hear their uh, testimonies, at the end of it, I say, you know, it sounds to me more like you made Jesus Lord and then Savior. God's after both. It is the same thing. He's after men bowing the knee to himself. And so a, an inoffensive gospel is not only an unbiblical gospel, it's one which will have no power to save. God will never join himself with that. And it will never be the means of a new heart, new life, and faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Um, and one last thing I'll just say, and many people have said this before, this isn't unique to me, but an awful lot of the people you'll talk to who have these kinds of um, arguments at you, because it's not so much with you anymore, um, they are they are where they're at. They are saying what they're saying uh, because there's some sin they don't want to give up. I've known people 
who in the middle of these conversations will say, okay, what you're really saying is you don't want to stop having sex with your girlfriend. That's what you're really telling me. And a surprising amount of the time, <laughs> the guy will say, yeah, that's part of it. I want what I want, and I'm not giving it up. And I know your God wants me to stop that. These are not intellectually honest agnostics. There is no such thing. These are people with a, not just a predisposition, but an all-out life commitment to their sin. We were all that way until God breaks through the darkness. We were all that way. Now, some of us are saved so young it wasn't quite as obvious. Some of us are saved later in life after a, a living in a great deal of open public sin. It's, it's more obvious in those cases. But every person you're talking to who is not a Christian is a committed um, sinner. They're committed to anti-God. And however nice or sweet or anything else they may be, you need to understand they know there's a God and they hate it. They hate that truth. And they're living their life the way they want anyway. And the gospel, with its information about sin and righteousness in Jesus Christ, is the answer. All of the intellectual debates you can have, I'm not, I'm not saying those are worthless. But if you really care about the, someone's soul and you don't think you've got a lot of time, I'd just give them the gospel. I'd quote them a couple Bible verses. Remember what it is. It's the power of God unto salvation. All right?